The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Hello and welcome to another edition of Public Domain Playhouse. Public Domain Playhouse is a cross between an ebook experience and a full-blown podcast. A theatrical production, kind of like a radio drama, as opposed to just straight-out reading. But the works that we're reading are important because they're in the public domain, but they're such masterpieces that they have changed the lexicon of the way we speak and the way that we view the world. So let's take a look at this author. Herbert George Wells, who was born in 1866 and died in 1946 at the ripe age of 80, was an English writer. He was prolific in many genres, writing dozens of novels, short stories, and works of social commentary, history, satire, biography, and autobiography, and even including two books on recreational war games. He's now best remembered for his science fiction, and he's often called the father of science fiction, along with Jules Verne and the publisher, Hugo Gernsback. During Wells' lifetime, however, he was uh, most prominently known as a forward-thinking social critic who devoted his literary talents to the development of a progressive vision on a global scale. He's a futurist, so that means he wrote a number of utopian works and foresaw the advent of aircraft tanks, space travel, nuclear weapons, satellite television, and something similar to the World Wide Web. Wells's science fiction imagined time travel, alien invasion, invisibility, and biological engineering. Brian Aldiss referred to Wells as the Shakespeare of science fiction. Wells rendered his works convincing by instilling commonplace detail alongside a single extraordinary assumption. This was actually dubbed Wells's Law. This led Joseph Conrad to hail Wells in 1898, O realist of the fantastic. Isn't that a great quote? O realist of the fantastic. Wells's most notable science fiction works include The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds, and the military science fiction The War in the Air. Wells was also nominated for a Nobel Prize in Literature four times. One of the reasons that we're going to get War of the Worlds today is that it's one of his greatest works. And his earliest specialized training was in biology. And his thinking on ethical matters took place in a specifically and fundamentally Darwinian context. Wells was also, from an early date, an outspoken socialist. Often, but not always, at the beginning of the First World War, Wells sympathized with pacifist views. His later works became increasingly political and didactic, and he wrote little science fiction. While Wells sometimes indicated on official documents that his profession was that of a journalist, novels such as Kipps and the History of Mr. Polly, which described lower middle class life, led to the suggestion that he was a worthy successor to Charles Dickens. But Wells described a range of social strata, and even attempted, in Tan Bungay, published in 1909, a diagnosis of English society as a whole. Wells was a diabetic and co-founded the charity The Diabetic Association, known today as Diabetes UK. He founded that in 1934. 
The War of the Worlds is a science fiction novel by H.G. Wells, first published in 1898. It's in the first-person narrative, and it's the adventures of an unnamed protagonist, and that man's brother in Surrey and London as Earth is invaded by Martians. Spoiler alert in case you didn't know what War of the Worlds was about. This book was actually written between 1895 and 1897, and it's one of the earliest stories that detail a conflict between mankind and an extraterrestrial race. This novel is one of the most commented on works in the science fiction canon. The War of the Worlds has two parts, Book 1, The Coming of the Martians, and Book 2, The Earth Under the Martians. Doesn't uh, leave much to the imagination to wonder what happens in Section 1. The narrator is a philosophical-inclined sort of fella. He struggles to return to his wife while seeing the Martians lay waste to southern England. Book 1 also imparts the experience of this man's brother, also unnamed, who describes events in the capital and escapes the Martians by boarding a ship near Tillingham on the Essex coast. The plot has been related to invasion literature of the time. The novel had been previously interpreted as a commentary on evolutionary theory, British imperialism, and generally Victorian superstitions, fears, and prejudices. At the time of publication, it was classified as a scientific romance, like his earlier novel, The Time Machine. The War of the Worlds has been both popular, having never gone out of print, and influential, spawning half a dozen feature films, radio dramas, a record album, various comic book adaptations, a television series, and sequels or parallel stories by other authors. It has even influenced the works of scientists, most notably Robert Hutchings Goddard. This project is part of Project Gutenberg ebook of the War of the Worlds. It's an ebook that's available for use by anyone, anywhere, for no cost, and with almost no restrictions whatsoever. You can copy it, give it away, or reuse it under the terms of the Project Gutenberg license included with this ebook, or online at www.gutenberg.net. So let's get on with the actual text of H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds, and we'll get back to a little bit of commentary as we go. Once again, this is Bart Benny of Public Domain Playhouse. Thank you very much for joining me. Let's get to it, shall we? <coughs> the War of the Worlds But who shall dwell in these worlds if they be inhabited? Are we, or they, lords of the world? And how are all things made for man? Kepler, quoted in The Anatomy of Melancholy. Book One, Chapter One, The Eve of War. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. That as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, 
serene in their assurance of their empire over matter, it is possible that the infusoria under the microscope do the same. No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. It is curious to recall some of the mental habits of those departed days. At most, terrestrial men fancied there might be other men upon Mars, perhaps inferior to themselves, and ready to welcome a missionary enterprise. Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our mind, as ours are to those of the beasts that perish, intellects, vast and cool and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. And early in the twentieth century came the great disillusionment. The planet Mars, I scarcely need remind the reader, revolves about the sun at a mean distance of a hundred and forty million miles, and the light and heat it receives from the sun is barely half of that received by this world. It must be, if the nebular hypothesis has any truth, older than our world. And long before this earth ceased to be molten, life upon its surface must have begun its course. The fact that it is scarcely one-seventh of the volume of the earth must have accelerated its cooling to the temperature at which life could begin. It has air and water and all that is necessary for the support of animated existence. Yet so vain is man, and so blinded by his vanity, that no writer up to the very end of the 19th century, expressed any idea that intelligent life might have developed there far, or indeed at all, beyond its earthly level. Nor was it generally understood that since Mars is older than our Earth, with scarcely a quarter of the superficial area, and remoter from the Sun, it necessarily follows that it is not only more distant from time's beginning, but nearer its end. The secular cooling that must someday overtake our planet has already gone far indeed with our neighbor. Its physical condition is still largely a mystery, but we know now that even in the equatorial region, the midday temperature barely approaches that of our coldest winter. Its air is much more attenuated than ours. Its oceans have shrunk until they cover but a third of its surface, and as its slow seasons change, Huge snowcaps gather and melt about either pole and periodically inundate its temperate zones. That last stage of exhaustion, which to us is still incredibly remote, has become a present-day problem for the inhabitants of Mars. The immediate pressure of necessity has brightened their intellects, enlarged their powers, and hardened their hearts. And looking across space with instruments and intelligences such as we have scarcely dreamed of, they see, at its nearest distance only thirty-five million of miles sunward of them, a morning star of hope, our own warmer planet, green with vegetation and gray with water, with a cloudy atmosphere eloquent of fertility, with glimpses through its drifting cloud wisps of broad stretches of populous country and narrow, navy-crowded seas. And we men, the creatures who inhabit this earth, must be to them at least as alien and lowly as are the monkeys and lemurs to us.
The intellectual side of man already admits that life is an incessant struggle for existence, and it would seem that this, too, is the belief of the minds upon Mars. Their world is far gone in its cooling, and this world is still crowded with life, but crowded only with what they regard as inferior animals. To carry warfare sunward is, indeed, their only escape from the destruction that, generation after generation, creeps upon them. And before we judge them too harshly, we must remember what ruthless and utter destruction our own species has wrought, not only upon animals, such as the vanished bison and the dodo, but upon its inferior races. The Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were entirely swept out of existence in a war of extermination waged by European immigrants in the space of fifty years. Are we such apostles of mercy as to complain if the Martians warred in the same spirit? The Martians seem to have calculated their descent with amazing subtlety. Their mathematical learning is evidently far in excess of ours, and to have carried out their preparations with a well-nigh perfect unanimity. Had our instruments permitted it, we might have seen the gathering trouble far back in the 19th century. Men like Schiaparelli watched the Red Planet. It is odd, by the by, that for countless centuries Mars has been the star of war, but failed to interpret the fluctuating appearances of the markings they mapped so well. All that time, the Martians must have been getting ready. During the opposition of 1894, a great light was seen on the illuminated part of the disk, first at the Lick Observatory, then by Perrotin of Nice, and then by other observers. English readers heard of it first in the issue of Nature, dated August 2nd. I am inclined to think that this blaze may have been the casting of the huge gun in the vast pit sunk into their planet, from which their shots were fired at us. Peculiar markings, as yet unexplained, were seen near the site of that outbreak during the next two oppositions. The storm burst upon us six years ago now, as Mars approached opposition, Lavelle of Java set the wires of the astronomical exchange palpitating with the amazing intelligence of a huge outbreak of incandescent gas upon the planet. It had occurred towards midnight of the 12th, and the spectroscope to which we had once resorted indicated a mass of flaming gas, chiefly hydrogen, moving with an enormous velocity towards this Earth. This jet of fire had become invisible about a quarter past twelve. He compared it to a colossal puff of flame suddenly and violently squirted out of the planet as flaming gases rushed out of a gun. A singularly appropriate phrase it proved. Yet the next day there was nothing of this in the papers except a little note in the Daily Telegraph and the world went in ignorance of one of the gravest dangers that ever threatened the human race. I might not have heard of the eruption at all had I not met Ogilvy, the well-known astronomer, at Ottershaw. He was immensely excited at the news, and in the excess of his feelings, invited me up to take a turn with him that night in the scrutiny of the Red Planet. In spite of all that has happened since, I still remember that vigil very distinctly the black and silent observatory, the shadowed lantern throwing a feeble glow upon the floor in the corner, the steady ticking of the clockwork of the telescope, the little slit in the roof 
an oblong profundity with the stardust streaked across it. Ogilvy moved about, invisible but audible. Looking through the telescope, one saw a circle of deep blue and the little round planet swimming in the field. It seemed such a little thing, so bright and small and still, faintly marked with transverse stripes and slightly flattened from the perfect round. But so little it was, so silvery warm, a pinhead of light. It was as if it quivered. But really, this was the telescope vibrating with the activity of the clockwork that kept the planet in view. As I watched, the planet seemed to grow larger and smaller and to advance and recede. But that was simply that my eye was tired. Forty millions of miles it was from us. More than forty millions of miles of void. Few people realized the immensity of vacancy in which the dust of the material universe swims. Near it in the field, I remember, were three faint points of light three telescopic stars infinitely remote, and all around it was the unfathomable darkness of empty space. You know how that blackness looks on a frosty starlight night. In a telescope, it seems far profounder, and invisible to me because it was so remote and small, flying swiftly and steadily towards me across that incredible distance. Drawing nearer every minute, by so many thousands of miles, came the thing they were sending us, the thing that was to bring so much struggle and calamity and death to the earth. I never dreamed of it then as I watched. No one on earth dreamed of that unerring missile. That night, too, there was another jetting out of gas from the distant planet. I saw it, a reddish flash at the edge, the slightest projection of the outline just as the chronometer struck midnight. And at that I told Ogilvy, and he took my place. The night was warm and I was thirsty, and I went stretching my legs clumsily and feeling my way in the darkness, to the little table where the siphon stood, while Ogilvy exclaimed at the streamer of gas that came out towards us. That night, another invisible missile started on its way to the Earth from Mars, just a second or so under twenty-four hours after the first one. I remember how I sat on the table there in the blackness, with the patches of green and crimson swimming before my eyes. I wished I had a light to smoke by, little suspecting the meaning of the minute gleam I had seen, and all that it would presently bring me. Ogilvy watched till one, and then gave it up, and we lit the lantern and walked over to his house. Down below in the darkness were Ottershaw and Chertsey, and all their hundreds of people sleeping in peace. He was full of speculation that night about the condition of Mars, and scoffed at the vulgar idea of its having inhabitants who were signaling us. His idea was that meteorites might be falling in a heavy shower upon the planet, or that a huge volcanic explosion was in progress. He pointed out to me how unlikely it was that organic evolution had taken the same direction in the two adjacent planets. The chances against anything manlike on Mars are a million to one, he said. Hundreds of observers saw the flame that night, 
and the night after about midnight, and again the night after, and so for ten nights, a flame each night. Why the shot ceased after the tenth, no one on earth has attempted to explain. It may be the gases of the firing caused the Martians inconvenience. Dense clouds of smoke or dust, visible through a powerful telescope on Earth as little gray fluctuating patches, spread through the clearness of the planet's atmosphere and obscured its more familiar features. Even the daily papers woke up to the disturbances at last, and popular notes appeared here, there, and everywhere concerning the volcanoes upon Mars. The serio-comic periodical Punch, I remember, made a happy use of it in its political cartoon, and all unsuspected, those missiles the Martians had fired at us drew earthward, rushing now at a pace of many miles a second through the empty gulf of space, hour by hour, and day by day, nearer and nearer. It seems to me now almost incredibly wonderful that, with that swift fate hanging over us, men could go about their petty concerns as they did. I remember how jubilant Markham was at the securing of a new photograph of the planet for the illustrated paper he edited in those days. People in these latter times scarcely realized the abundance and enterprise of our 19th century papers. For my own part, I was much occupied in learning to ride the bicycle and busy upon a series of papers discussing the probable developments of moral ideas as civilization progressed. One night, the first missile then could have scarcely been ten million miles away. I went for a walk with my wife. It was starlight, and I explained the signs of the zodiac to her, and pointed out Mars, a bright dot of light creeping zenithward, towards which so many telescopes were pointed. It was a warm night. Coming home, a party of excursionists from Chertsey or Islesworth passed us singing and playing music. There were lights in the upper windows of the houses as the people went to bed. From the railway station in the distance came the sound of shunting trains, ringing and rumbling, softened almost into melody by the distance. My wife pointed out to me the brightness of the red, green, and yellow signal lights hanging in a framework against the sky. It seemed so safe and tranquil. And that concludes Chapter 1, The Eve of the War. In Book 1, The Coming of the Martians, from H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. This is Bart Benny for Public Domain Playhouse. Join us next time for Chapter 2, The Falling Star. On behalf of Public Domain Playhouse, we'll see you in the next chapter.